The following podcast contains audio extracted from videos on the Mythology Explained YouTube channel. Please note that there are two narrators for this podcast, myself, Silas, and Zach. Please enjoy. Norse mythology can be broken down into three parts, the mythic past, mythic present, and mythic future. In the past are events like the beginning of the universe and the advent of the first gods and giants. The present is the time in which Ragnarok, the cataclysmic clash that ends the current age of the world, looms near, the world on the precipice and about to plunge into the maw of death and destruction. And in the future is Ragnarok, the end of the world as it currently exists. Though it hadn't yet come to pass, much of what it entailed was known, and to no god were these events better known than Odin. The inexorability of prophecy hung over the Norse gods like the headman's axe. Odin's mind was burdened by grave knowledge and dire threats, that of his own death, the death of his kin and comrades, and the unraveling, or near to it, of everything he built, the labors of all his life. One of Odin's defining characteristics was the pursuit of knowledge, magic, and wisdom, and in this pursuit he was largely impelled by his own fate. If someone knew how they were going to die, this hypothetical death of the untimely sort, their life would probably revolve around how to avoid their own death. The same was true for Odin, who endeavored to forestall the events of Ragnarok, his death destined therein, by becoming the most formidable version of himself possible, accreting every esoteric detail, learning every spell, no matter how arcane, and becoming the superlative of wile and wisdom. To this end, Odin embarked on many adventures, undertook many trials, and subjected himself to suffering, the sacrifice of grievous bodily harm sometimes needed as payment for what was endowed. He gouged out one of his own eyes as payment to drink from the well of Mimir. He impaled himself with his spear and, thus transfixed, hanged himself from the world tree for nine days and nine nights to learn the secrets of the runes. He stole the meat of poetry. He resurrected the dead and communed with spirits. He preserved and reanimated the severed head of Mimir. And he learned cider, a feminine type of magic from the goddess Freya. Beyond making himself more powerful, steps were also taken to preemptively diminish the forces that would rise up against the gods. And the best example of this is described in the myth entitled Loki's Monstrous Children. Loki sired three children by the ogress Angerboda. They were Fenrir, a colossal and indomitable wolf, Jormungandr, the world serpent, and the goddess Hel. The gods learned that those three were prophesied to wreak havoc, so they decided to mitigate their malignity. Odin ordered the gods to capture this trio of odious offspring and deliver the captives to him. Once done, he dealt with each accordingly, but his efforts would be proven futile. Hel was cast down to Niflheim, but this inadvertently gave her power over all nine realms, now master of all the unheroic dead who died without a sword in hand. Jormungandr was cast into the ocean, but there he grew so large that his gargantuan bulk encircled the world. And Fenrir, the eldest of the three, was raised in Asgard, but his size and strength, prodigious to begin with, grew to such a terrifying extent that he was deemed too baleful to not be bound. He was chained, his jaws propped open by a sword wedged inside, hilt to point, 
but his imprisonment would not last forever. In addition to attempting hamstringing future enemies by proactively purging its pieces from the board, care and concerted effort also went into preventing key prophecies from coming to fruition, and chief among these was the death of the god Baldur, who was the son of Odin and the goddess Frigg. It was known to Odin that Baldur's death was harbinger to the onset of Ragnarok, so the idea was that if Baldur was alive, Ragnarok would forever be something on the horizon rather than something the gods were existentially embroiled in, nipped in the bud, the wick wet and unlit. Unfortunately, just as the gods wouldn't be availed by the banishment or imprisonment of Loki's monstrous children, so too would their efforts to keep Baldur alive be in vain. Ominous dreams began to plague Baldur. He told the gods about them, and given how acutely inauspicious they were, extreme measures were taken. Frigg traveled all nine realms and secured from everything, literally everything with one exception, oaths not to harm her son. Here's the passage. They, the gods, took counsel and decided to seek a truce for Baldur, protecting him from all dangers. Frigg took oaths that Baldur would not be harmed by fire and water, iron and all kinds of metal, stones, the earth, trees, diseases, animals, birds, poisons, and snakes. When this was done, Baldur and the Aesir took to amusing themselves by having Baldur stand in front of all the others at the assembly while some would shoot at him, some would strike blows, and some would hit him with stones. Whatever was done caused him no injury, and all thought this remarkable. Similar to how Loki's three monstrous children would be the banes of the gods, dealing dreadful blows to Asgard, Loki himself was to be the grand architect of Ragnarok, instigating its onset, siring its most terrible threats, and killing gods, both through the contrivances of cunning and the skillful wielding of cold steel. Up until the point of Baldur's death, Loki is a grey character, certainly not benevolent, but not wicked either. He gets himself and the other gods into a lot of trouble, but he also usually sets things right in the end using his magic and manipulation to clean up the messes he makes. One of the best examples of this is when Loki shaves Sif's, Thor's wife's, head. This was a prank that didn't go over well with Thor, so Loki, who didn't want to be pulverized by the strongest god in Norse mythology, promised to set things right by visiting the dwarves and having new golden hair made. He made good on his word, and by playing two groups of dwarves against each other, he accomplished a lot more than what he originally set out to do. The conclusion of this ordeal was that six mighty magical gifts were made, two gifted to Odin, two to Thor, and two to Freyr. Among them was Gungnir, Odin's spear, Mjolnir, Thor's hammer, and Skidbladnir, Freyr's ship, the most excellent of ships that could fold up like cloth and fit into a person's pocket. This dynamic, the trickster that creates problems, and then finds solutions, ceases to be when Baldur dies, Loki becoming an agent of doom instead of a mischievous miscreant who makes good in the end. The fact that Baldur was impervious to harm irked Loki, so he took the form of a woman and, thus disguised, approached Frigg. He asked if oaths to not harm Baldur had been secured from everything, and in the course of their conversation, he learned that there was one exception, mistletoe which was thought too innocuous to be worth bothering about, 
an oversight the gods would come to sorely rue. Loki went and collected some mistletoe, and then found Hode, the blind god, who as of yet hadn't participated in the game of throwing stuff at or striking blows on the invincible Baldur. He couldn't see the target, so he didn't join in the fun, and his exclusion was, in Loki's eyes, an opportunity to be capitalized on. Feigning beneficence, Loki went up to Hode and convinced him to not be set apart by his blindness and to do as the other gods did. He gave Hode a projectile and directed him so that his aim was on target. Of course, this projectile was mistletoe. It struck true, and before Hode, him but a pawn poised for exploitation, not a complicit actor in the crime, knew what had happened, Baldur lay dead on the ground, and according to the Prozetta, Odin suffered most from this misfortune. This was because he understood most clearly how grievous was the loss, and that the death of Baldur was ruin for the Aesir. Though Baldur was dead, the situation was not yet entirely beyond salvation, a glimmer of hope still visible. The god Hermod was dispatched by the Aesir. He rode for nine nights through uncharted darkness until he reached the Gjol Bridge. He stopped to talk with the maiden who guarded it. She told him of the road to hell and let him pass. Hermod continued, eventually coming first to the gates of hell and then to the hall of hell where he was granted an audience with the goddess Hel, whom he beseeched to allow him to depart with the soul of Baldur. Hel agreed, but only if everything in the world wept for the deceased god. Hermod retraced the same perilous path, now braving it in reverse, and returned to the gods with his solemn tidings. Here's the passage from the Prozetta that explains what happened next. Next, the Aesir sent messengers throughout the world asking that Baldur be wept out of hell. All did so, people and animals, the earth, the stones, the trees, and all metals in the way that would have seen these things weep when they come out of the freezing cold and into warmth. As the messengers, having accomplished their task, were returning home, they found a giantess sitting in a cave. She said her name was Thok, and she would not weep no matter how they pleaded. People believed that the giantess was Loki, the son of Laufey, the one who did the most harm to the Aesir. At this juncture, Loki well knew that redemption and reconciliation were impossible for him. He had burned everything down, figuratively speaking, and him trying to repair relations would have been like trying to rebuild from the ruin he wrought by smushing clumps of ash together. He killed Baldr and then kept Baldr from being resurrected. He killed the most beloved of the gods and ensured the end of the world couldn't be avoided. There was no going back and he knew it, so he fled and went into hiding. Glossing over what happened next, the gods caught up with Loki and captured him, and once in their possession, no diabolical thought was spared. Both of Loki's sons were also captured. One was transformed into a wolf, and in the ravenous madness of that form, descended upon and ripped apart the other. The entrails of the destroyed sun were used to bind Loki to the top of three stones, becoming like iron once they fastened him. A serpent was perched above, venom perpetually dripping from its fangs. Sigyn, Loki's wife, remained by her husband's side, catching the venom in a bowl, but when it was near overflowing and she went to empty it, poison dripped onto Loki's face, racking him with pain, and writhe and wail though he did, 
he could not force himself free and escape. Ragnarok was just around the corner. The first thing to happen was Fimbleventer, meaning something like extreme winter. A trying time to be sure, but still but a preliminary period when compared to what was to come. The cold, the wind, the snow, all will be harrowing like never before. Three of these winters will happen in succession, with no intervening summer. Before this, though, will be another winter, three times the length of a normal winter. Entailed in it is the dissolution of morality, sworn oaths held in contempt, brother will turn against brother, the bonds of kinship will cease to matter, and greed will become the new god. Reaving, raiding, debauchery, and deviant behavior of every kind blighting the land so that it becomes a nihilistic hellscape. Afterwards, the sun and the moon will be devoured and the stars will fade, the sky becoming an oppressive and ominous dome of darkness, devoid of shine or glow or sparkle. Two wolves constantly chase the sun and the moon across the sky. Never do they run down their quarry, but come Ragnarok, they will. And when they succeed at last, their hunt finally coming to an end, the radiance of the sky will be ripped out, root and stem. Concurrently, earthquakes will shake and sunder the land. Mountains will be laid low, forests felled, and all fetters broken, this last unleashing Fenrir, the Nagalfar, and Loki. Fenrir will charge forward, his bottom jaw pressing down against the ground, his upper jaw pressing up against the sky, consuming everything in his path, his eyes like great pits of fire and fire erupting from his nostrils. Jormungandr, the world serpent, will writhe furiously, causing the sea to surge and wash over the land. He will spew out so much venom that it will cover the world. The Nagalfar, the fell and fearsome ship made from unclipped trimmings of dead people's toenails, will be freed from its moorings and will come floating in on the flood captained by the giant Hrim. Amid the upheaval and bedlam of the world being unmade, the sky will be suddenly rent with a fiery gash. Led by Surtur, the army of Muspelheim will rush through. A river of fire will flow before Surtur, and so too will there be fire behind him. He will wield a mighty sword, the blade incandescent with the glow of red-hot metal and wreathed in flame, so bright that the shining of the sun were it still visible, would have paled by comparison. All of the enemies will converge on the field of Vigrid, which stretches out for a hundred leagues in every direction and will be the location of the last battle. There assembled Fenrir, Jormungandr, Krim and the Frost Giants, Surtur and the Fire Giants, Garm and Loki, who now led the Horde of Hell. Here's the passage from the Prosetta that describes the battle between Asgard and all the monstrous armies gathered and galvanized to end its reign. While these things are happening, Heimdall stands up, blows with all his might in the Gjallarhorn and awakens all the gods, who thereupon hold counsel. Odin rides to Mimir's well to ask advice of Mimir for himself and his folk, then quivers the ash Yggdrasil, and all things in heaven and earth fear and tremble. The Aesir and the Einherjar arm themselves and speed forth to the battlefield. Odin rides first, with his golden helmet, resplendent Birni, and his spear Gungnir. He advances against the Fenris wolf. Thor stands by his side, but can give him no assistance, for he has his hands full in his struggle with the Midgard serpent. 
Freyr encounters Surtur, and heavy blows are exchanged before Freyr falls. The cause of his death is that he was without his good sword, which he gave to Skirnir. Even the dog Garm gets loose. He is the greatest plague. He contends with Tyr, and they kill each other. Thor gets great renown by slaying the Midgard Serpent, but retreats only nine paces when he falls to the earth dead, poisoned by the venom that the serpent blows on him. The wolf swallows Odin, and thus causes his death, but Vidar immediately turns and rushes at the wolf, placing one foot on his bottom jaw. On this foot he has the shoe for which materials have been gathering through all ages, namely, the strips of leather which men cut off for the toes and heels of shoes. Wherefore he who wishes to render assistance to the Aesir must cast these strips away. With one hand, Vidar seizes the upper jaw of the wolf and thus rends asunder his mouth. Thus the wolf perishes. Loki fights Heimdall, and they kill each other. Thereupon, Surtur flings fire over the earth and burns all of the world. With the gods dead, not all of them, but the very best of their number, Odin, Thor, Tyr, Heimdall, and Freyr, and with the monstrous armies either dead or departed, the world now a great conflagration, with a black sky overhanging, like a bonfire raging in the middle of a moonless night, what will be next? Will Ragnarok be the extinction of the gods? Will the world remain a field of fire, atop a seething sea, never to rise again? The short answer to these questions is no. Ragnarok, though nearly all-consuming destruction is entailed in it, is a reset, not an end. It will bring to a close the current age, so that the next age can begin. The old world, the mighty and decaying stump, from which the sapling of the new world draws nutrients and springs forth. The fire that blankets the land will burn out, and the earth will shoot up from the sea. The earth that emerges will be renewed, verdant, bountiful, and in bloom acres upon acres of fertile land already tilled and sown, so that new crops begin to grow immediately. As the old world was destroyed, so too were the older gods destroyed, but many of the younger ones endured, ready to take up the mantle previously held by their venerated kinsmen. Again, Ragnarok wasn't the end, only the closing of a book before the next book is opened. The younger gods, coming together after the fire burned itself out, and the flood receded, are the first few pages of the next book, and the story continues with the re-emergence of humanity. Two people found refuge in Hodmimir's wood, where they were sheltered from and survived Surtur's fire. Everyone else perished, now dead as the previous age was dead. These two people will be named Leif, Life, and Leif Thresir, Life Yearner. The morning dew will be their food and drink, and from them the human population will proliferate and flourish once more. As well, there will be another miraculous recovery. Both the sun and moon were extinguished, finally caught and devoured by the two wolves who perpetually pursued them across the sky. But just before her death, the sun had a daughter, and this daughter, at first just the seed from which the sky's golden flower would grow anew, will be as bright and beautiful as her mother was before. The Gilvagening, meaning something like the diluting or tricking of Gilvi, is the first main section of the Prose Edda. It begins with the creation of the world and concludes with Ragnarok, the end of the current age. The collection of myths that unfold throughout are nested within the overarching framework of a conversation, 
one between Gilvi, a Swedish king, and Odin. At the beginning, Gilvi is described as making an undercover approach. That he is a king is concealed, and he instead assumes the identity of a wanderer named Gongleri, in which guise he visits the gods so that he might learn from them. Upon his arrival, he enters a hall where he encounters three figures seated on three thrones, high, just as high, and third. These figures are actually manifestations of Odin, and they provide Gilvi with answers to his questions about the cosmos, the gods, and the giants. As he poses his questions and receives answers, the reader is presented with a structured exposition of Norse mythology. After the end of the current age has been told of, a din rises. Loud noises that emanate from every direction suddenly roar in Gilvi's ears. Startled, he looked about him for the source, and before he even had a clue as to what was happening, the hall he was standing in had vanished and there was silence. He was in a field, and now outside and alone, he promptly departed and returned home. And that's it for this video. If you enjoy the content, please like and subscribe. Thanks for watching.